0: Welcome to Season 4 of the Leadership Educator Podcast, your source for knowledge and expertise on facilitating leadership education, training, and development. Interested in keeping up with the leaders' conversations across the leadership discipline? Want to add more to your resource toolbox with practical strategies for teaching, learning, and program design without changing your routine? Well, this is the podcast for you. If you haven't done so already, please hit subscribe so you will never miss an episode. Hello, and welcome to the Leadership
1: Educator Podcast. I'm Lauren Bullock, Assistant Professor of Instruction at Temple University.
0: And I'm Dan Jenkins, Chair and Associate Professor of Leadership and Organizational Studies at the University of Southern Maine. And we are both thrilled for this episode of the podcast. We're joined today by David Franklin. He's author of Invisible Learning, the magic behind Dan Levy's legendary Harvard Statistics course. So welcome to the show, David. Hello. Thanks so much for having me on.
1: It's great to have you here today. And we're excited to find your email in our inbox. I don't know if people know this, but if they have some ideas and want to reach out to us, they more, they're more they more than welcome to. And I think this was a case where your work really fit into what we're talking about here on our, our podcast. Um, So before we talk to you today about your book, um, we'd love to talk to you a, about how you got to this point in your career. So maybe a little bit of your backstory, and, but then also kind of what led you to studying this statistics class at Harvard and then writing a book about it?
2: Sure. So I started life as a mathematician, um, but I never really liked statistics very much. It seemed this kind of fidgety subject that you kind of had to do a bit of, um, but it was never really one of my passions. Um, I went, I I worked off in the private sector for eight years or so as an economist, um, and then decided to go back to Harvard for a couple of years to study some economics because I always felt like a bit of a fraud. And I felt like I'd been kind of winging it for a while, um, not really knowing what I, what I was talking about. Um, so at Harvard, um, they had this fantastic statistics course um, taught by a professor called Dan Levy, um, who I ended up writing, uh, writing the book about. And what really kind of fascinated me was the way that, you know, this is a course that everyone comes into wishing they didn't have to do. You know, they're they're at Harvard to do much kind of loftier, bigger things when it comes to policy making and and, and all sorts of uh, clever stuff. Um, But statistics is a course that they have to take. um, And it's a quantitative course to some extent, and people are intimidated by the idea. Um, And yet you come out of the course, a lot of them come out of the course in the last lecture it literally in tears to be at the end of this, this course, that they're, they're, they're losing the safety of the environment that the course has built up. Um, they can't explain why they're having this emotional reaction to the end of the course. Um, and I just found that super interesting. You know, this isn't really, it's not normal human behavior to, to cry at the end of a statistics course. And so I kind of thought, you know, if I'm ever in the position that Dan's in, if I'm ever teaching or well, anything really, I, I want to know exactly what he did. Like, well, well, what precisely did he do to create these reactions in in people? And so I was his course assistant the following year. Um, I wrote down everything I could. You know, every tiny interaction or piece of humor um, or whatever. And then um, at one point, my my partner said to Dan, um, "You know." David should write a book about your course from all of these notes that he's got. He's got everything. And both Dan's and my reaction, well, that it was well, that's crazy. Yeah. I, I can't just go off and, and, and write a book. But it turns out that, you know, if you have a pandemic to work with and you write a thousand words a day for enough time, you get to a book and we got there. And it's something that, you know, I, I hope that people will enjoy and that I'm quite proud of. I love that.
0: Yeah, and and one of the things that was just a pleasant surprise after reading the book was the this integration that that you made between the way that uh, Dan teaches this class and some of the other types of pedagogy that are also going on at Harvard, and 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 one of the ones that certainly I want to highlight is Ron Heifetz's class and the way that he uses the case in point method. And many of our listeners are definitely aware of, of Ron's work and leadership without easy answers and adaptive leadership among others. And he's been a keynote uh, speaker and presenter at our international leadership association conferences, among, among other things. And so what does a stats class have to do with leadership education? I think that's that's you know, that I think our listeners might be might might be wondering that. Yeah, maybe I'll just open it up like that. Like what how would you respond to that? If if you know, doc, you know, to, to Lauren and I, I mean, what what does the statistics class have to do with, with teaching leadership? And, and where did you see where did you see those those commonalities and, and overlaps?
2: It's it's a great question because if you had put it to me that way two years ago, I would have had the exact same reaction. You know, these are two different fields, one's quantity, one, one's not. Um, But as I kind of went through this journey, trying to understand what it was that he was doing, the parallels between the two seem to get kind of greater and greater every day. And there's this idea in Heifetz's teaching um, of an adaptive challenge. So any task that you might ever have to do can be split up into being either a technical challenge or an adaptive challenge. And technical challenges are the ones that you know you, you can plan for. It might be difficult, but you've done it before. You can write a list of things that you're going to have to do to get through it. And if something goes wrong, you're going to kind of know why it went wrong. You're going to be able to log everything and you're going to be able to see your progress throughout that task. Adaptive challenges are more like uh, say, for example, you, you've had to go through a really difficult breakup. Now, you've got no idea how long it's going to take you to, to get over that. Um, it might take you uh, weeks, it might take you months, it might take you years. And throughout the process, you're going to have very little visibility on, on where you are in, in, in that process. Um, so that kind of sense of progress being invisible Um, of it being something that you may need to be held through is something that's very common in the Heifetz teaching. And he talks a lot about leadership being the kind of holding of people through an adaptive challenge. Um, So what does it have to do with Dan's class? Well, the central contention of the book is that learning is an adaptive challenge, learning itself. And when we think about how we learn, it is in that sense that progress is often invisible, right? We don't, um, uh, it, it kind of illuminates itself, you know, some, sometimes slowly, sometimes in this kind of aha moment. Sometimes we get to the end of the class and we feel like, you know, we, we kind of learned something, but we weren't sure when it happened. We are able to use sort of new concepts with dexterity, but we're, we're not sure when, you know, when that happened. And so it has all the hallmarks of being more adaptive than technical as a challenge. And once you take that as a premise, you can start to apply Heifetz's framework and you can start to think about, well, what's the holding environment in this challenge? What is the learning environment? How do bonds form between the members of the classroom? And that's essentially what we try to do in the book.
0: You illustrated so well in in the book about how the this learning environment and this holding environment is is created because of the way that, that Dan facilitates the class. Um, in the book that that I wrote with, with Kathy Guthrie, who we've had on the on the show this season, uh, the role of leadership educators, transforming learning, we actually talk about this idea of this unseen architecture, which what which when I got the email from you and I saw the book was called Invisible Learning, I thought, this I, I like we're, we're in the same wavelength. Like we're thinking about this stuff the same way and how effective instructors, we can really be instrumental in creating like supportive and challenging environments, but this unseen architecture is really, or unseen or invisible learning is really it's co-created by the instructor and the and the participants in the classroom. And so there's this kind of like culture of support and challenge, which you talk about as kind of being like authority, but also coach. you're also like, you know, really kind of um, instigating and, and really trying to like, like drum things up and, and agitating um, a little bit the learners. And so you have this back and forth, these two elements that foster learning being both support and challenge. And so making participants, the learners feel safe in this encouraging environment, it's like challenge each other, learn from mistakes, think critically, ask difficult questions. Like I, I just love how it seems that Dan was a master at creating a a community and setting community standards in order to do that. Sometimes subliminally, sometimes I guess more explicitly. And I just... Uh, yeah, I'm curious what what you might have to say in in response to that. like how how did you kind of see that evolve and 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 develop as a as a teaching strategy?
2: Well, well we're definitely on the same wavelength with the uh, with, with the architecture question when we talk a lot in the book about these kind of invisible bonds. and again, it's one of those things that you know at the start of the journey of the book, it was it was very intangible, right? You, you, it's clear that, The idea of a learning environment means something. Because everyone talks about it. They say, I love the learning environment that Dan creates. But it's much harder to tie that down to exactly what they mean by that and exactly what the learning environment is. So we talk about it as these kind of invisible bonds. So you have vertical bonds between Dan and the students. You also, crucially, have these horizontal bonds between the students themselves. And there's a great phrase that I love from the kind of Heifetz um, leadership classes that gets repeated a lot, which is that people only take responsibility for what they helped to create. And I think it's such a crucial thing about teaching leadership, but also teaching anything else, that what, what Dan does is to, as you put it, to create the community within the students, but he also makes it clear to the students that they're not just there to learn from him, they're, le- they're, they're there to learn from each other and to teach each other. So you get this incredible environment in which, in a sense, all of the students are on the teaching team. They come into class knowing that they will be expected to teach their colleagues something. You know, the work's not only on Dan, it's on them as well. And the, there's quite a profound effect of that because it means that when you look at the purpose of the class, which clearly from Dan's point of view, this is to maximize the learning of his students. That purpose is shared by everyone in the class. And when that happens, you start to think of them as a team and you start to look at the the literature on on leadership of teams and what what people in positions of authority in teams can do to support those teams. And in this case, to support learning. And that just leads you down this really kind of fascinating um, strand that, that that I think was was a, ended up being a central part of the book.
0: I loved that quote. That was actually one that that I that I highlighted and pulled out as and annotated as I was reading through this idea that, as you said, Hyphen says people only take responsibility for what they helped create. Um, and I I started to see that come to life. And I think I've shared this on on the uh, on the podcast before of of just learning activity I experienced as an undergraduate where we were uh, I was part of a student political party. We were running for like student government and we played a four corners exercise where we were asked to come up with ideas about things we want to change on campus, you know, at at the university. And we made lists and then um, they brought it back together after we were, they brought, you know, the four corners of people. Maybe there were 75, 80 folks. They brought it all back together and we started to make a platform based on all of these ideas that political platform for student government based on all the ideas that we had about how we wanted to change campus, you know, with more parking for students, cheaper textbooks, better food in the mess hall, whatever, you know, types of things. But that wasn't the point. The point was that we helped create this platform. And so we were, we felt that we were running for the student political party based on all these issues. And I don't say we felt like we were. I mean, that was what the idea was. And so I've used that activity in my undergraduate uh, internal leadership classes almost every semester, because what I'll say is I'll be like, hey, like, David's running for student body president, but this is his platform. How, you, how many are you going to vote for David? And like almost everyone's hand and the class goes up. I'm like, well, why are you going to vote for David? They're like, well, we were part of the process. We helped create this platform. And so I, I love that because it it just, your point and, and hypothesis point is it's an inclusive environment. It's a safe environment. It's a trusted environment. And, and it it's so interesting that you were able to observe somebody doing that in a statistics class, because that's it's something that we think, you know, we're well. We might be biased, and I know you talk about bias too, but we're biased. Like, hey, leadership educators, like we're like, hey, we're we do a pretty good job of this stuff uh, because we're trying to not only teach inclusivity, but we're trying to model it as well.
2: And I think it, you know, it brings to bear the importance of leadership education, right? Because it's it's not just people that are going to be in positions of formal authority. Um, for which this is helpful. It's, if you believe the, the kind of premise of the book that learning is an adaptive challenge, um, then anyone who is learning something or is teaching something or um, is, is, in, is in any kind of learning process at all, which is almost everyone, you know, these concepts are super important. And um, I, hopefully the book can act as a bridge between um, some of these Heifetz ideas and other stuff kind of uh, in, the, in the world at large.
1: I feel like I'm listening to this conversation and y'all are saying exactly what I'm thinking before I can even get it out. I love it. Cause so you, you just mentioned it being this bridge. Um, one of the things I think about is there's a, so I teach a class called leading groups and teams. And while there's a, a ton of content that we go over, part of it is me constantly asking those students, okay, so what strategies are you using? What strategies are you using? And just enforcing that this idea that, you know, you are going to have to take some ownership in the relationships that you build. And it's not always going to be the leader who's going to be able to help you with that construction. So, you know, in group and team projects in class, students always default to going to the professor when there's a problem. And so while I do want them to come to me and ask those questions, I also, you know, my first question is always like, well, what have you tried and what do you think? And then what did we talk about in conflict? When we talked about this, you know, and it, it just seems like it's two separate things. Like I'm learning these things about groups and teams. However, I'm having a problem with my group and team, and I don't know where to go for information. And so I love that you say that this is kind of bridge building, because I, I think that this has existed, but it's only really existed if you've taken a leadership course. And now it sounds like some of the things that we know about leadership in general are now starting to bleed out into these other spaces. I, I love that.
2: Um, I think I think there's a really fascinating parallel between uh, what you said there and kind of what Dan does as well, because what you described is is a very classic kind of leadership technique. Right. You in a position of authority and your students coming to you and saying, hey, we don't know the answer. Like, come and help me, like come and provide some support. And so they have like expectations of you, which is a which is a constraint on your authority, because you may feel. You know, bad at having to disappoint those expectations, that they, they may kind of look at you and think, God, this, this person's supposed to be in a position of authority and they're not helping me. Um, and yet, if you want to maximize their learning, you need to kind of, as Heifetz would say, you're kind of exercising leadership in disappointing those expectations. And it's something that Dan does a lot to, um, to, to never to validate the first response that a student has, always to kind of wait let there kind of create some conflict among, among the students that tension with the material um and it's something that I hadn't realized existed outside of leadership classrooms until I kind of sat down and took a long time and, and thought you know what Dan's doing it's exactly the same or very similar to the stuff that we learned in the
1: hybrids class yeah I, I it's 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 great to hear, but it I struggle with that a little bit because I am definitely an affirming person, but I, I use that scaffolding. Okay, let's build on that. Yep, let's build on that. Let's continue. So it's going to be interesting to to test some of these these things out. Um, I also think too. Um, First, I loved math and hated statistics as well. So I'm glad that there are other people because it's, it's, it, 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 I struggled with that as well. I'm glad you're in that boat with me. Um, I also think, I don't know that we, those that aren't thinking about faculty as leaders, I don't know that they have the same approach. So I had a colleague who, she, whenever groups came to her, she said, nope, figured out yourself. And we had this conversation one day and I said, you know, while I appreciate you putting the responsibility on them, I wonder if you are, they see you as a leader in this space. And this is what you're teaching them about leadership that I can't go to someone in an authoritative position and ask for help. Cause they're not going to help me. And she was like, you know, I, I never thought about it like that. I want them to be responsible and accountable. And so I knew it because I, I, read about leadership and teach leadership, but I also, my research background is faculty student interaction and looking at the relationships that we're having with faculty. And I'm like, think about the relationship, like think about the dynamic and what they're going to take away. Um, We know college is a space for transitioning from like the home to professional life. And so these are the things that you're teaching them. And it seems like this is now kind of spilling outside of just that leadership space, so. I have more comments than questions at this point, because I think it's just so interesting that you were able to put all of this together, so. But you
2: you raised some really interesting kind of points there that like, I think one of them that was coming through was this idea of psychological safety. And I'm sure a lot of the listeners will be familiar with Project Aristotle, this Google project where they started out to say like, "We're we're gonna figure out, we're gonna do a ton of regressions, we're gonna work out what the perfect team has, you know, what attributes. And they all came into it like being super confident that it was going to be about the makeup of the team. You know, you need a diverse team, you need kind of a PhD, a practical person, you know, some scholars or, or, or whatever. And what they found was that psychological safety, the, the lack of fear of making a mistake was by far the most important thing when it came to the, the success of a team. And so, you know, that was something that you were kind of talking about with your colleague when it, because she was putting so much of the work back on uh, on the students there was potentially a risk that the psychological safety could be could, could be in danger you know students need to feel that they can come come to you for for, for with questions and things um we, we talk about in the book a little bit about what we call the learning zone as well which I, I think is another Heiferts uh, concept where um, you have these kind of three zones you have the comfort zone, the learning zone and the danger zone. And it's a really tight balance for teachers and professors to try to, uh, to try to walk, and, and leaders as well, um, to try to create as, create enough heat and tension and conflict to get people out of their comfort zone, but not so much that they enter the, the danger zone. And so, although it was something that we talked about that you know you need to be giving work back to um, the, the students in this context that. There's also a danger that if you do that too much, they're gonna switch off because they're they're gonna go up to that danger zone and find it very difficult. Um, And yeah, finally, that thing that you mentioned about um, loving math and and hating statistics, it shows as well the power that the figure of authority has to frame the issue. Because one of the reasons that I disliked statistics first time around when I was at university was it was taught as this kind of dry branch of math. And stats isn't about math, really at all. I mean, you know, you can do some math with it if, if you really, really want to. It's kind of boring. But like the really fun bit about stats is is in teaching you to evaluate truth in the world. And, you know, that's quite a messy business. And it's more subjective than it is objective. And it's, you know, there's a lot of biases and uncertainties and all sorts of things that make that difficult. But that for me was the really interesting challenge, not like proving the central limit theorem or something. Um, so I thought, yeah, the, the, that really kind of resonated with with me and, and my experience of, of the class.
1: Well, even and I'll before Dan I know has some questions. Even I love that you share that because that's one of the best teaching approaches. Is really that so? So in general faculty have approached teaching with like this is a required course so you should know kind of why you need it and there's so much literature out there and more people are starting to adopt this premise of you really need to explain the purpose of your class or what students should be grappling with and like with my leading groups and teams class the question is you know what strategies do you use to work well and get along with people in groups and teams and professional spaces. And that's we come back to that question regularly with everything we talk about. And so you know it it moved from just kind of clicking through PowerPoints and you read the text and I regurgitate it back to to really good discussions about that like fear they have and where they've done well. Um, I also too dedicate like a whole session to psychological safety where there's a great Ted talk that we watch and we break down what that really means. And I think students are excited, but also nervous because they're like, well dude, does my boss know about psychological safety? And I'm like, I don't know if if they're like me and almost 40, I don't know that they took a leadership class until they were in their thirties So I don't know. So that then becomes your strategy to figure out how do I then coach my boss into creating psych safety if they don't know that this exists this and what we mean. So
2: yeah, absolutely. And it's I think with psychological safety as well that there's a kind of when people first come across the concept it can kind of sound like it's just being nice, kind of, you know, coming in and being nice to your students, but in it, in some it's in some ways the two are kind of diametrically opposed in that too much niceness can sometimes be an indicator of low psychological safety. It's kind of like when you meet someone for the first time and everyone's being kind of very polite and, you know, you you want to make a good first impression, but you're fearful that, you know, you say the wrong thing, you might kind of, it might damage your relationship with that person. Whereas, you know, it's often the, the sign that a relationship has got to that next stage, you know, psychological safety has developed when someone says something a bit more cheeky, you know, slightly kind of off the beaten track. And I think the same is true when you're kind of working with teams and in the classroom as well. I
0: so saw that that bridge as well. And, and I think towards the end of the book, you, you talk a little bit more about how you define the learning environment, specifically as built up of, and you mentioned this too, the, you know, built up of all the bonds between the members of the class. And that the strongest learning environment, just like a team, is when the students act as a team with the same common purpose, which is Maximizing learning, you know, and. There's a great there's an activity that, that I've done in my classes as well. And we teach this um in some of the workshops that, that we do with the Leadership Education Academy, which is also through the, the ILA, where we, we ask students to jot down lists of like the best, the best class they've ever been a part of, um, as well as to jot down some lists about some of the things that happened in the worst class they've ever been a part of. And what did the teacher do and what did the instructor do, or what did the teacher do? And it's just really interesting to watch these this dynamic show up. And it's a lot of reciprocal types of things, like the teacher's disengage. Aging, then students are sleeping. On the other hand, if it's. If the instructor is using lots of humor and engaging and developing relationships and shows care, the students are doing the same thing, not only with the instructor, but with each other. And so th- that, that gets to this point of, if you boost this psychological safety by modeling and, and creating ground rules and, and doing some norming and going through the stages of like you know de- uh, team development, you're actually going to end up with this high team performance, which is this high performance of the students uh, with the, in the class in a team with the instructor. And so I love too, that you use this, the terminology of the same common purpose, because we talk about that a lot, not only in leadership, but also in the study of followership, which is you have this relationship of, okay, you've got leaders, you've got followers, you have these shared values, and it's all they're all trying to work towards this common purpose, which is, as you say, max, maximizing learning. And it's just, I love how that also came out again in a Sats class, which is fascinating to me.
2: I think that's really, really well put. And I think yeah, that, that purpose is central to the idea of team learning. I think one of the kind of interesting things that comes out, which isn't immediately obvious, is that team learning and inclusive learning are, are not completely the same thing. So to be in a team learning environment, it has to be inclusive. You, you cannot have people that are not um, involved in the classroom activity and still be an effective team. But you can be an inclusive classroom without necessarily being a team learning classroom right you can you can be in a situation where as a professor and a really good professor you understand that um, you need to build these bonds with all of the members of the classroom you need to wait so that it's not just your superstar students kind of answering uh, everything Um, and what happens is that you strengthen all of the vertical bonds kind of in an inclusive way within the classroom which is which is great and that's always a kind of positive thing the team learning part of it is more a statement about the horizontal bonds between the students, and as you said, it's it's about connecting them with your purpose as the uh, as as the uh, either the, the the leader or the or the professor or whatever you want to call it, um, and making sure that that inclusive environment becomes one in which everyone is pulling in the same direction.
0: Without a doubt, and and it's interesting; th- these bonds are also creating opportunities for students to talk about and share some of their individual differences. And, and I, I, that's a point that I just, I definitely want to kind of t- to tease out in the conversation because you observed Dan using that, the case method. And we talked a little bit about how, you know, hypothesis has been popularized for his use of that case in point method, using the, the classroom as an organization and as a case and using that to, to really um, create a learning environment and and talk about change and decision-making and how we sit with certain types of emotions and, and conflict and what have you. And in particular, this idea of a bias and how bias comes out in statistics. And so when we when use it, I guess, and utilize and leverage students' individual differences or bias, if you will, that can be used to co-construct knowledge and create this reciprocal environment. And I guess, ideally, as you said, create an inclusive learning environment. Can maybe share maybe an example where you, where you saw that case method come to life? Maybe that's in the book or maybe that's not in the book, but where you saw this idea of Dan of, of just like absolutely utilizing students' experiences as a vehicle for co-constructing knowledge and then the outcome or the, or, or the output is this, this inclusive learning environment.
2: Sure. So one of the things that Dan likes to do is to do experiments on the students, which kind of sounds kind of funny, but yeah, you know, he does it in virtually every lecture. And you know, the, the outcome is that you know, an experiment that if he had just quoted some study sometime, he'd, he'd have students kind of nodding off, you know, the, these results were kind of on them and about them. And so the, you see these students on the edge of their seats wanting to know what the result of that experiment was. And you know, one of them that comes to mind, he says, um, it's just, so it's to do with anchoring, um, you know, the, the, the bias that where if I tell you a number that's completely unrelated to a subsequent question, um, and then I ask you a question. You're, you're more likely to give an answer that's closer to the number that, that I that I gave in the first place. And the example he does with students is that he gives half of the students the number uh, 35, I think it is. Um, and the other half of the students are given the number 100. Um, he then invites uh, uh, everyone to guess what the population of Turkey is. Um, and the students... Who received the number 35, and in fact, it's in the form of a thing where they have to say, is the population of Turkey higher or lower than 35 million? Um, the students who get that 35 prompt um, guess on average significantly lower than the students who get the prompt that, that says 100. It's that the difference is something like 25 million. So, you know, just because he's kind of asked that question shouldn't have any effect on, on how we perceive the. Um, uh, the, the the value of of something or the population of something. I think um, Daniel Kahneman talks about this as well in uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, which I, I'm, I'm sure um, uh, you guys and a lot of your audience Love will it. be yeah. will be familiar with. Um, this this idea where like th- th- there was an experiment, wasn't there, where um, they they had a hat full of pieces of paper and um, they got people to take a piece of paper out of the hat, and all of the pieces of paper had the number number ten on them. Um, but they weren't to know that. They thought they were taking a random number. Um, and then they they asked them to buy this bottle of champagne um, off them. And the first group all got the number 10 and on average offered like $18 for, for, for the bottle of champagne. The second group, were, all, all of them kind of picked the number 100 out of the hat and they offered $60 each for the champagne. So it's this incredible this bias that really kind of screws us over when we try and kind of value things rationally. Um, but. You know, although that's an interesting story, it wouldn't have been as interesting if Dan hadn't kind of done it to them, like if, if they hadn't experienced the kind of the the frustration or the the kind of almost the mock kind of the humiliation of, it, of being like, wow, I I thought I thought about things kind of in a rational and smart way. I mean, you know, I'm in a, in a Harvard statistics class. I can't be that, you know, I can't be that bad at this stuff. And yet, you know, they, they get dumbfounded by the, these kind of biases that Dan introduces very early on in the course. So you, know, you can imagine being in his class and being like, well, I'll, I won't do that again. I'll, I'll make sure i am kind of I'm switched on to those ideas. And he does that a lot. So it, he does that in as many classes as he can to try to relate it to the students.
1: So. I uh, love the idea of experiments on students and using them as the subjects and trying to teach statistics. I also think it's interesting because I feel like I got this in my doc program. That like that book you mentioned, we had to read. Um, Thinking fast and slow was the first book we had to read in our program, and I wonder if um, introducing it at lower mm-hmm. levels is maybe more beneficial. You know, I think sometimes with the thousand level courses, we think we can't give them these text or we can't give them this material they're not going to be able to process it when in reality if they had it early on maybe it would help guide them a little bit more through all of the classes right because I'm sure these students take the skills and experience and either wish other instructors would do this or faculty members would do this or they um take that approach and kind of create it for themselves in those spaces. So um, I I do have like real quick, um, where can people get more information or get the book if they're interested in reading it?
2: So the book's available on Amazon uh, worldwide. Um, So amazon.com, amazon.co.uk. There's also a website, invisiblelearning.com. They should also feel very free to email me if they have any, any questions at David at invisiblelearning.com. Invisible learning has a hyphen between it as well.
1: Awesome. We'll make sure to include that in our show notes. David, thank you so much for joining us today. This wraps up our episode of the Leadership Educator Podcast. Um, Thank you for joining us again. And we look forward to digging even more into the book. As you can tell, there's so much in there that we would have loved to cover. And I love that now we have this this intro into it. So when we're reading, we can now email you back and forth and say, you know, you mentioned this in the book. Now we're getting to that part and I love it. It's great. So thank you again. And we wish you the best of luck this year.
2: Thanks so much for having me. It's been so much fun. I, I do. I love speaking about this stuff.
0: We would love for you to follow us on Twitter. I'm at Dr. That's D-R underscore leadership. And uh, Lauren is at M-R-S-L-A-U-R-J-B. That's Mrs. Laura J-B. And you can find the episodes wherever podcasts are available. And we also encourage you to subscribe and rate us five stars. As the more you rate us, the easier it is for others to find us.
1: We'd also like to thank the James M. Cox Jr. Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership within the Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia, support was facilitated by Dr. Keith Herndon, William S. Morris Chair in New Strategy and Management.
0: And our wonderful theme music was composed, performed, and mixed by Dr. Matthew White, trumpeter, composer, and educator. And he's currently an associate professor of trumpet, coordinator of jazz and commercial music, and director of ensembles at Coastal Carolina University. You can check him out at www.mattwhitejazz.com. Matt, thanks so much for sharing your musical genius with our audience.
1: And finally, thank you to the Association of Leadership Educators. Check out what. ALE has to offer at leadershipeducators.org. We hope you listen to our next episode wherever you get your podcasts.